you know, I got to get a few good licks before you put up your hands. <laughs> oh, well, everybody's ready. <clears throat> All right. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter nine, where we are going to look at part three of murder self and live for God. When the Reformation was happening in Germany and Switzerland, led by men like Martin Luther and John Calvin, it was also occurring in England. Henry VIII, the king of England, wanted to divorce his wife, Catherine of Argonne, but the Pope would not permit it. Henry's solution? Fire the Roman Catholic Church, start his own church, and make himself head. But Henry wasn't real equipped to create his own church. And so what he did is is he gathered around him men like Thomas Cranmer, whom he made Archbishop of Canterbury. Cranmer was being influenced by the Reformation, his beliefs slowly switching from Roman Catholic to Protestant beliefs, Protestant being those who protested the unbiblical views and teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. For Henry's new church, Cranmer wrote the common book of prayer, the book, the book of uh, English liturgy. A liturgy is kind of a, a formal worship service. And unlike the Roman Catholic liturgy, it was written in English. So people could actually understand it instead of being written in Latin that people didn't understand. Cranmer also wrote the original doctrinal statement of the um, Church of England or Anglican Church or Episcopal Church, whatever you want to call it. And after his death, it has been refined into 39 articles, which remain to this day, most of which, if you read, you would full-heartedly agree with as biblical. Cranmer promoted biblical preaching, the education of all pastors and doctrine theology in the original languages, which, if you don't know, before, before that time, you didn't have to know anything about the Bible to be a priest. He also required that copies of the English Bible be placed in every church so that anyone could go and read the scriptures. Well, after Henry VIII died, his son Edward VI became king. Edward was mentored by Cranmer and made a strong Protestant, made sweeping religious reforms and tried to make England a Protestant country. But Edward died at a very young age. And before he died, he had requested that Lady Jane Grey be made queen, but that didn't happen. Through a series of events, his half-sister, Mary I, the daughter of Henry's first wife, Catherine of Argonne, became queen instead. And Mary hated Protestants and the Church of England. She knew that her father broke away from the church, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, for the express purpose of being able to divorce her mother. The divorce was eventually granted by none other than Thomas Cranmer. Mary had to see her mother disgraced, and she herself was demoted from Princess Mary to Lady-in-Waiting, a servant of Lady Shelton, who, at the direction of her father, treated Mary very poorly. Mary was not permitted to see her mother or even attend her mother's funeral. Her life was miserable because of what Protestants had done to her. This made Mary very bitter and angry towards the Anglican church and Protestants in general. And she was now queen. During Mary's five-year reign... She made it her goal to destroy the Anglican church, burning at the stake over 300 Protestant ministers, some women and children. Many of these ministers were great men of God who were faithful preachers of the word. This earned her the infamous title of Bloody Mary because of all the people she had executed during her reign. And because Archbishop Cranmer was the one who granted permission for her father to divorce her mother and caused her so much grief, he became the target of her wrath. 
He was removed from office, tried, and imprisoned for treason, and later for heresy. The Roman Catholics rejoiced to see him suffer. He was defrocked, degraded, had his head shaved, and was made to wear ragged Protestant clothes. In prison, he was cruelly treated by his Roman Catholic captors and offered over and over again an opportunity to recant his faith, which he refused. And then the Roman Catholic bishops got together and like Satan, they decided to take a different approach, a different method. They removed him from prison, clothed him with fine clothing, and placed him in the house of the dean of Christ church, where he was given every luxury. And since he was in his 60s, and compared to the prison he had been in, this was a great relief. His enemies promised him that he would be restored to his former position as Archbishop of Canterbury, receive the queen's pardon and be freed to live in peace and luxury if he would only recant his biblical beliefs. The thought of being restored to his former glory, having the queen's favor, riches, luxury, dignity, honor, respect, and the luxuries of this world began to draw him into thoughts of compromise. And to help Cranmer recant, he was first asked to sign a very vague, ambiguous document, which he did with a clear conscience. Five other documents, though, were brought before him over the course of time, each one explaining in more detail what was ambiguous in the first And finally, a full recantation was placed before him. And having formed the habit of having signed all the other ones, he willingly signed it too. So where persecution had failed, indulgence triumphed. May this be a lesson to all of us. By signing the last document, he denounced his Protestant doctrines as unbiblical. He also affirmed the Roman Catholic doctrines he had formerly rejected. He recanted ever having opposed the Pope. Cranmer's recantation was immediately printed and distributed all over England in an attempt to deliver a death blow to the Protestant cause. And when Bloody Mary heard Cranmer had recanted, she was very pleased and decided to burn him at the stake, ignoring the promises that were made to him. And it was a sad day for the pleasure of the world, for the pardon of the queen, for the approval of men and the fear of death. Thomas Cranmer sold his soul to the devil who then betrayed him. Cranmer was ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, how could Cranmer do what he did? After all he knew, after all he had stood for, after all he had labored to accomplish, how in the world could he ever compromise the truth? And the answer Because Thomas Cranmer, like all of us, was a sinner. Peter did the same thing, didn't he? Think about Peter. He's called by the Lord. He hears Jesus teach. He sees Jesus do countless miracles, incredible miracles, the Mount of Transfiguration. He's even given power to perform miracles and cast out demons, experiences all of that. And then at the very end, when Jesus was being crucified, he denied Christ three times with cursing and oaths. Well, this morning we return once again to Luke chapter 9. Verses 23 through 27. Jesus in the previous context has affirmed to his disciples that he has in, he is indeed the Christ, the son of the living God. And he knows that if his followers go out 
and start proclaiming this message, it is going to be difficult on them. There's a hard road ahead for his followers. So Jesus wants to explain what it means to be a real Christian. Not the kind of Christian that you hear about today in the world, but a real Christian, a real follower of Jesus. So first, Jesus begins by letting everyone in the crowd know and his disciples that the first thing that must happen is you must die to self. Secondly, he informs them that by trying to live a selfish life, they're going to lose it. And by trying and by giving their life to him, submitting to him and turning their whole life over to him, they're going to save it. And then Jesus reasons with us saying, how is a man profited if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? And the implied answer is obviously nothing. You lose all if you lose your soul. And so we return to Luke 9. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 23. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. As we have learned already, Jesus presents four necessary truths that all Christians must know and experience in their life if they're ever going to have the hope of being saved and getting to heaven. And the third one we come to this morning, the fear you must reject. After being saved by grace, we are then called to obey by grace. That is, we are called to take all of the gracious resources God gives us as Christians and live for Christ. It's pretty obvious. We quit living for self and Satan. We start following Jesus. And the scriptures describe the Christian life as war, labor, striving, fighting, struggling, working. It is a life of discipline, of struggling against sin and self and Satan and the world. And there is one thing, though, that out of all the things that Christians are told to do, that is just the pinnacle of difficulty. You know, reading your Bible faithfully and consistently is hard. Praying without ceasing is difficult. You know, serving and sacrificing to give to the church, that's hard. But there is something at the top, the peak, the point, that is the most difficult thing. Look at chapter 9, verse 26, and Jesus tells us what it is. For whoever is ashamed... Is a stop there. The word ashamed is to be fearful of something that you possess or ashamed or embarrassed by something you own or own up to. So that you either do not speak of it or you try to hide it from people who might discover It is true of you. And Jesus says, for whoever is ashamed, and he mentions two things. First, of me. That is Jesus' person, Jesus' identity, Jesus, the son of God, born of a virgin, perfect life, buried, resurrected Jesus, who he is. And secondly, if you look there, my words, that is Jesus's teachings and the word of God in general. 
So Jesus is speaking about those who are fearful, ashamed, embarrassed to let other people know that they are followers of Christ, that they believe the word of God. Why would any Christian, though, be ashamed of their Savior and Lord? You know, why would a junior hire, for instance, be afraid to admit in class or to a group of friends that Jesus was his Savior and Lord? Why would a high school student or a college student, when given a great opportunity in class to stand up for biblical truth, not say anything and just let the worldly, wrong, sinful, damning view go uncontested? You know, why would a housewife be unwilling to share the gospel and to speak about Christ to her friend or a neighbor or an acquaintance? Why would a Christian businessman, how could he continue on for years and years and people at his workplace never even know he's a Christian? Now, I mean, what are we scared of? That someone might come to know the Lord? No, that, that's not it. We want everybody to come to know the Lord. We want everybody to be saved and everybody to be a Christian. No, the truth is those people don't speak because they're ashamed of Christ. And this is an act of idolatry. It is an act of idolatry because what we're doing is, is we love ourselves. We love our comfort. We love our own Um, ease so much that we're unwilling to take up our cross, deny ourselves and tell people, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Bible, all of it. And so we put ourself and our comfort on the throne and let Christ sit at our feet. I know That we've all done this. And it is idolatry. It is to deny Christ instead of yourself. And it's really being deceived into thinking you're a Christian. When you're not. I know what some of you are thinking right now, Jack, Jack. Wait a second here. Are you telling me that if I don't speak up for Jesus, if I don't share the gospel, if I don't proclaim the truth of God's word, that I'm not saved? Are you trying to tell me that salvation is by the works of doing certain things like proclaiming the gospel and standing up for biblical truth? No, no to the first question, because I'm not telling you you're not a Christian. If you're ashamed of Christ, Jesus is going to tell you that in just a minute. Secondly, no, you are not saved by proclaiming the gospel and you are not saved by standing up for biblical truth. You are saved by grace through faith so you can stand up for the truth and proclaim the gospel. The apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, right after he goes into five different reasons why we're saved by grace. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Paul says to Titus in Titus 2.14, after talking about being saved by grace, that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Paul, in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, after he's gone into extensive detail about salvation being by grace through faith, then says this, Therefore, 
We have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father. So we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, we are saved by grace to obey by grace, which is not being ashamed of Christ or his words. It means sharing your faith and standing up for the truth. Yes, I understand what you're saying. But the Bible says that that is wrong. That is a sin according to the scriptures. Well, hey, listen. We don't believe in the Bible. We don't believe in the scriptures And you say, but I do, and God does, and you will after you die, and this is wrong. There is this hellish notion that being a Christian is kind of a part-time thing. It's kind of like brushing your teeth. Oh, yeah, you got to brush your teeth, but you know your life isn't consumed with brushing your teeth, hopefully. It's like trimming your nails. Yeah, you got to do it, but you know... Life isn't nail trimming. It's something you got to do periodically because it's just a necessity. And, you know, being a Christian, you got to go to church and put in your couple hours a week. And then you can live for sin and self the rest of the time. That, people, is not Christianity. That is Satanity. Jesus wants you to spend and be spent for him and his truth in this world 24 hours a day, seven days a week, not just on Sunday. And if you look at your life, if you look back at last month, last year, last years, and you realize, you know, I don't tell anybody the gospel. I can't even remember when I shared my faith with anybody. I don't even remember standing up in front of a group of unbelievers and saying, I believe the gospel. I believe Jesus rose from the dead, died on the cross for my sins. The Bible says this is wrong or that's wrong. This is right. I can't even remember a time. If this is you, by all means, doubt your salvation. A great preacher, Henry Ironside, told the story which happened to him shortly after being saved. He was only a boy, and he was street preaching. This is what he recounts. When I was only a lad at a Saturday night meeting on the street corner in which I was participating, along came some of my schoolmates, and they were dumbfounded at seeing me in this meeting, and they listened in amazement when I witnessed for Christ. On Monday, when I came to school, they greeted me derisively, shouting, Hallelujah! And I said, Praise the Lord! And they said, Praise the Lord! And I said, Amen! And some who were kind to me said, Harry, what do you mean by turning religious? You are throwing your life away. Why, says Ironside, that is just what I intended to do. And it came to me so clearly, and I am thanking God that he, in his grace, started me that way. What do people see when they look at your life? Do they see what they saw in Henry Ironside's life? Man! You're throwing your life away to this religion thing. You're wasting yourself on Jesus and church and the gospel and living for this myth called Jesus. That's what you want them to see. Do they see you denying yourself, taking up your cross and following after Jesus and not just on Sunday for a couple hours? Be assured, even true believers at times are ashamed of Christ and his word sometimes. 
You know, I grieve those times in my own life when I'm so caught up in the things of the world and I kind of have this agenda. I'm just, I'm a very linear. Um, I get these kind of agendas and I get these plans and I just kind of grind through them. You know, and I'm at the home improvement store and I'm in the aisle and standing in line. Some guy wants to talk to me and I, you know, a few quick words. Yes, yes. You know, I got to get home and fix my toilet. (laughs) And, you know, so I get through the line and I'm driving away and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit is able to grind through my stubborn heart. And I realized, man, what am I doing? Is this guy's soul more important than my toilet? And I know the answer. It's like, well, I can't plead ignorance. I know the gospel. Um, what's my problem? I'm ashamed of Christ is the problem. Wrong priorities is the problem. So I have to confess my sins and ask Christ to help me to do better next time to live my life for him. And so when I'm doing my thing, I make sure I'm thinking about his thing first. But we still really haven't answered the question, why? Why are even true believers at times ashamed of Christ? Mark's gospel helps us. Because in Mark's gospel, in the parallel text to our text, Mark adds a phrase which Luke leaves out that Jesus said. Mark 8, and I think it's, um, somebody said I got this wrong. Let me just go over there and make sure. I have lots of friends who come up afterwards and say, you quoted that wrong. Mark 832. Um, um, okay. This is it. This is it. Did not... Let's see, 32, they don't understand the statement. They came to prayer and say, it's not here. (laughs) Help me out, people. Who's ashamed of me and my words? Where is it? 38, there it is. See, there we go. 38, there it is. (laughs) That's what you need. 38, whoever's ashamed of me and my words, and here's the phrase, thank you, bless you children, Um, in this adulterous and sinful generation, that is the phrase that Luke leaves out. And what's good about that phrase is it gives us the reason why people are ashamed. And Jesus says the first reason is, is because we live in a sinful generation. A world that is controlled by the architect of sin himself satan satan has been very successful at giving jesus christ a bad reputation it's kind of like russia during communism people were convinced that certain truths were lies and certain lies were true in all sincerity well many in the world believe that those who are boldly share the Christ and believe the Bible, they're they're monsters. They're narrow-minded bigots and homophobics and clinic bombers. The Puritans are a classic case in point. What comes to your mind when you hear the word or read about the word Puritan or Puritanical? It's a slam. And yet the Puritans, beyond all cavil, were the most godly, biblically literate, evangelically minded group of people that has ever lived. They were committed to living for Christ in every area of their life and have the word of Christ rule them in all they did all the time, not just on Sundays. Fathers trained their children and their wives and loved their wives and led their communities and stained from sin and they died for the truth they believed. And if you haven't noticed, 
Puritan and puritanical, they're, they're slams, they're put downs, they're insults. Most Christians don't even want to be called that. To the world, they are the dregs of the earth. They are the people the world loves to vilify and hate. Why? Because they were not ashamed of Christ or his words. That's why. The world has portrayed them as prejudiced, fearful of pleasure, fearful of fun, fearful of life, people who burned witches and killed those who didn't agree with them. The worst examples they could possibly find have been extracted from the Puritan era and held up as the norm for everyone. And so now all the world believes that Puritans are the bad guys. And you know what? It's happening to the word Christian today. Christians start wars, persecute Jews, promote slavery, bomb clinics, promote intolerance to the world. The only good Christian is a Christian who is ashamed of the gospel and Jesus Christ who won't speak up. You take a bold verbal stand for Jesus Christ and his word. You say you believe Jesus is the son of God, that he lived a perfect life, that he was born of a virgin, died and rose again. You are a religious fanatic. You're like an Islamic extremist, terrorist. The world is a sinful, God-hating place. And this is why many are ashamed of Jesus and his words. Secondly, it's because we live in an adulterous or immoral generation. Would you say that sins of immorality, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, pornography, and lust are rare? Fairly common? Really common or epidemic? Yeah, correct answer, epidemic. People love darkness rather than light. You come along proclaiming Jesus, the light of the world, sharing the light of the gospel, standing up for the lamp of God which shines in the darkness and it exposes their sin. It makes them angry and makes them fearful of judgment. And so they switch subjects, run away or get angry at you. Does this remind you of anything? Maybe John 15, 18 through 20, where Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Accept it. The world hates the truth. The world hates Christ and the world hates anybody who loves Christ and speaks his word. But think about this. What do you have when you take Jesus and the Bible out of Christianity? Paganism. A hollow husk of man-made religion. There's nothing left. People wonder sometimes and go, Jackie, you're always getting a little bit, you know, freaked out here about, you know, the church growth movement, the seeker-sensitive movement. (laughs) I mean, what's the big deal? The big deal is that those 
quote, Christian churches refuse to preach against sin, refuse to preach about the wrath and judgment of God, refuse to perform church discipline, refuse to tell people about sin and hell because they are ashamed of Christ and his words. It is an attempt to make unbelievers comfortable with man-made religion, but not biblical Christianity. What good is a cheerleader if she refuses to cheer? What good is a basketball player if he refuses to play basketball? What good is an employee who won't show up and work for his company? What good is a Christian who won't speak up for Jesus and his words? The one thing that Christians can do here and now, which they can't do better in heaven, is tell unbelievers about Jesus and to stand up for the truth of God's word in a sinful generation. Everything else you can do better in heaven, but this one thing and this one thing only is the thing that Christ asks us to do and most people won't do it. But what if someone just doesn't feel comfortable sharing their faith and talking about the Bible and can I just pray for and give money to the person who is willing? No, do that, but you do it too. Jesus tells us the consequences if you aren't willing to speak up for him and his truth. Look at verse 26 in the middle of the verse. Jesus says, anyone who who is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him. You're on a softball team. And you know, it's the beginning of the year. It's your first practice. You haven't even played a game yet. All the people gather and there you are with a bunch of other team members and you practice. But one of the guys who practice with you, that first practice never shows up again. As a matter of fact, you find out he's practicing with another team. And then the season starts and you find out he's playing with the other team. And then over the course of the season, you do really well and you win the championship. And so there you are, you and your team members are all called to stand on the field and receive the trophy and to receive honor for winning. And as you're walking to the center of the field, there's that guy. That guy who practiced with you one time. Now, do you say, hey, you're on our team. You showed up to our first practice. Come on out here and receive the honors. Is that what you tell them? You say, no, too bad you're on the losing team. (laughs) Too bad you sided with the wrong guys. And this, Jesus says, is what will happen to those who are ashamed of him in his words. He will be ashamed of them. It doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how well you know the Bible, how often you go to church, how many good deeds you've done, how, many, how much money you've given, how morally upright and how many mountains of good intentions you have. If you are going to be a Christian, you must follow Christ, which is a life of saying no to self and speaking up for Jesus in his words. Paul had it right in Romans 1.16, right before he shared his huge gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for all who believe. I mean, think about it. Are we scared that someone's going to get saved? Jesus says he will be ashamed of you if you are ashamed of him. And his words in this life need to control what we do. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, Pastor Jack, okay, okay. All right. You're scaring me. Jesus, Jesus is going to be ashamed of me. You know, and I admit it. I've blown it. And uh, I, I, you know, there's been times when I haven't, done what Jesus has wanted me to do. And I feel terrible about that, but I still get to go to heaven, right? I mean, 
you know, I'm not going to end up in hell because I'm ashamed of Jesus, am I? Well, let's see what the text says. First, we can surmise from verse 26 that this is no light matter. Because the shame that is received is a Trinitarian shame. Notice they receive their shame. Look at the end of verse 26. When Jesus comes in his glory and the glory of his father and the holy angels. Now just picture in your mind here. It's the day of Christ's return to earth to set up his everlasting kingdom. With him are myriads upon myriads and ten thousands times ten thousands of radiant holy angels. The sky is rent in two and God's Shekinah glory is blasting down upon the earth. And with Christ are the faithful saints of all the ages. Those John describes in Revelation 12, 11, who overcame because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. So all of those people, the angels, the believers, and Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, have showed up. And there you are. And you know that... All Christians, true believers, because they place their faith in Christ, receive absolute and total forgiveness. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That they are washed clean and made to stand blameless with great joy before him. And Jesus is ashamed of you. You think you're going to heaven? Matthew 10:33 Jesus says, "But whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven." That's pretty clear. Turn over to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, a couple chapters over. Jesus is going to say the same thing in verses 8 and 9 of Luke chapter 12. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Listen, we've already stated that believers at times, like Peter, deny the Lord in moments of weakness and moments of selfishness for pleasure in order to avoid persecution, in order to have a good reputation, whatever the reason, yes, Christians deny the Lord. But listen, if it's the normal pattern of your life, if months go by and you never speak of Jesus, do not think that you know the Lord. Do not think that you will get to heaven. I fear for those who have gone for years without sharing the gospel, without telling other people they're Christians or standing up for the truth of God's word. Jesus says he will deny them on judgment day. So don't try to save your life for yourself and for your sin and for your comfort and for Satan. Wasted on Jesus. Jesus commended the church of Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2 verse 13 saying, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. In other words, they stood up for Jesus They proclaimed the truth even though people were dying for being Christians. At the beginning of the sermon, I told you about Archbishop Cranmer, who after spending much of his life advancing the cause of Christ, at the end of his life totally caved in and recanted his biblical beliefs. But I need to tell you the rest of the story. News was out. The general of the English Reformation had recanted his Protestant beliefs and put his signature to it. 
Bloody Mary planned to put him to death, yet Cranmer did not know this. He thought he was going to be pardoned and then restored. The queen was quick to write to one of her Roman Catholic advocates, Dr. Pohl, instructing him to secretly prepare a funeral sermon for Cranmer, which was to be preached to him in front of all in St. Mary's Church at Oxford. Immediately before he was to be burnt at the stake. Other high-ranking officials and noblemen were instructed by the queen to attend. It was kind of like when Nebuchadnezzar had all of his nobles and important dignitaries all assemble to see the revealing of the golden statue so everybody could worship it. The night before the execution, Cranmer was visited in prison by Dr. Pohl, who asked him if his faith in Roman Catholic doctrine still held. Cranmer affirmed that it did and that he would, by God's grace, be daily more settled in it. About 9 a.m. the next morning, Bishop Bonner, who participated in mocking and degrading Cranmer publicly, led him in great procession from Bacardo Prison to St. Mary's. As if Cranmer was some sort of captured king and he was a great military general parading him through in victory triumph. Cranmer was still clothed in his ragged peasant clothing. Many Protestants stood along the way grieving and wondering how Cranmer could deny the faith. And when they arrived at St. Mary's, the church was packed with grief-stricken Protestants and rejoicing and jeering Roman Catholics who eagerly desired to hear Cranmer recant his Protestant beliefs in front of all. Cranmer was placed in front of the church on a crude makeshift platform where he knelt and prayed. Dr. Pohl began to preach Cranmer's funeral sermon, praising God Almighty, who had brought Cranmer back to the true faith, even though he had committed such atrocious crimes against the church, against the Pope, and against the people of England. At the very end of his sermon, Dr. Paul exhorted Cranmer to take his death well. And Cranmer realized for the first time he was going to be burned at the stake. Dr. Pohl then said, brethren, lest anyone should doubt of this man's earnest conversion, you shall hear him speak before you. Then he turned to Cranmer and said, Master Cranmer, openly express the true profession of your faith that all may understand that you are Catholic indeed. Cranmer agreed and started by confessing that during his life he had committed many sins, that he were very sorry for committing, but that there was one sin that weighed heavily upon his soul. He then exhorted all of the people there not to follow the world and to believe that every bit of the Bible was true and the very word of God. And then he said this, quote, And now I come to the great thing that so much troubles my conscience more than anything that I have ever done or said in my whole life, and that is the distribution of writing that is contrary to the truth, which I now here renounce and refuse. These things were written with my hand contrary to the truth that I believe in my heart and written for fear of death and to save my life if it might be. That includes all such bills or papers that I have written or signed with my hand since my degradation in which I have written many untrue things. And inasmuch as my hand has offended and written contrary to my heart, my hand shall be first punished. For when I come to the fire, it shall be burnt first. Then with great boldness, he spoke his last words as for the Pope. I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist with all his false doctrine. And to the gasps of all the Catholics and to the praises and cheering of all the Protestants, he was jerked from his crude pedestal, drug out of the church, chained to a stake, wood was packed around him, and it was lit on fire. 
And when the flame started to rise up around him, he stretched forth his right arm, put his right hand into the flame and held it there until it was completely burnt off, saying the whole time, this unworthy hand. And then he died. Historian Harold Chadwick said the Pope's followers were completely frustrated in their attempt to use the archbishop to destroy the faith and steadfastness of true Christians. Like Samson, Cranmer destroyed more of his enemy with his death than he did with his life. People, we need to leave here today committed not to be ashamed of the gospel or of Christ or the truth of the Bible. We sing songs saying that we believe it. When we're here and it's comfortable, we say we believe it. We need to go out into the world and live it and say we believe it. Because it's what the world needs. And may we as a local church unashamedly preach the truth, proclaim the truth with boldness and steadfastness, remembering Jesus' words. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And if your life is characterized by being ashamed of Christ, listen to the word of the Lord. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. We as a church need to break away from the trend that is telling us the trend of the world, the trend of Satan, that the only good Christian is a Christian who is ashamed of Christ and his words. And we need to say, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. And you know what? You can be a Christian if you repent and believe and tell him the gospel. The only way we're going to help the world and save souls is if we speak the truth. So may God give us the grace and boldness to fear him more than men. And may he be glorified And may souls be saved because of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus' solemn words here. These hard but true words. We are in a battle. And you have called us to fear you more than men. To speak your truth. To tell people about Jesus. To not cave in for pleasures and comforts. Father, I pray that if there is someone here who has never repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they would do it this morning, that your Holy Spirit would come upon them with such might that they would be broken and crumbled unto salvation, that they would lay their life on the altar of sacrifice to your son. And for the rest of us who have failed you, Many times and in many ways. For the rest of us who know you and we know your truth. We sing about it. We talk about it. We read it. Father, may we, need, may we not be Sunday Christians only. May we speak up with grace and kindness, yet with great boldness. That Jesus is Lord, the Savior of men, who is coming back to, in judgment to judge the living and the dead. And Father, that we believe in your word, that is your inspired truth, that it is living, that it is active, it is piercing and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of men's heart and is the power of your Holy Spirit to bring men to repentance. Father, help us to be this way, that you might receive all the glory and honor and praise. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.